Our Father, we thank you for this time this morning. This is our time to just begin to kind of warm up our hearts and minds to the things of God. And even though here in Bible Training Institute we're more talking about the Bible than just teaching the Bible directly, I pray, Lord, that it is edifying to every person here. And I pray that it encourages us to go to the Word of God and to dig deeply into the riches and the wealth of spiritual truths that are before us. I pray, Lord, that you would bless each person here with this entire Lord's Day as being a day of attentiveness and worship and fellowship. Let the fellowship that we enjoy be sweet. Let the the worship that we offer to you be genuine and pure. And let our, our goal, Lord, to be those that walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, to be those that proclaim Christ and desire to be formed into his image. And I pray that this morning would contribute toward that effort. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start off with... We're going to look at um, interpretation part one. And we have to start with what we'll call special issues in interpretation. Um, most, of, most of today is just to edify you that Scripture is very detailed. It's extremely structured. Uh, it has a divine author, so therefore it is detailed and structured. Um, th- this is not for you to memorize all of this. This is more to just familiarize you with the, the terms and the issues so that you can interact intelligently with commentaries and other um, you know other resources, so uh, you will you can get these notes you know get the the powerpoints online so uh, i wouldn 't try to write all of this down unless you just really really want to um, but th- these are things to be aware of, and if you 're not aware of them when you 're trying to interpret a passage you might it might draw you off uh, just a bit and these are issues that are not uh, new these are things that uh, students of the Bible for many hundreds of years have dealt with and seen as important so Here are the two words to edify you today. Literary genre. Um, Genre is just the the French word that you you learned in high school English, which means form or kind. What's the category? Literary genre simply means what kind of literature is it? Uh, what, what is the type of literature? So in the Old Testament, we have narrative, law, prophecy, uh, wisdom. In the New Testament, we have gospel. We have narrative history, uh, which is acts. The epistles, which is a letter. We have the genre uh, prophetic apocalyptic, which is the book of Revelation. It's its own kind of whole category. There can be lots of overlap. There can be multiple genres present. Uh, you have Jonah, for example. It's both prophecy and narrative, with an emphasis on the narrative. Uh, Lamentations is considered poetry, but it's also uh, prophetic. Both Testaments have subgenres that go under it. And, and if you want to read more about this, uh, uh, Roy B. Zuck, his book on uh, hermeneutics, uh, is helpful with this. Subgenres like parables and riddles and speeches and, and things like that. And so um, commentaries can help you kind of whittle that down as to what genre you are. The reason this is important is that genre gives you a clue about what kind of communication you're dealing with here and there are instinctive rules that accompany that communication and let me give you an example if you took the phrase let's make a deal 
let's make a deal is the genre of literature in which this phrase occurs tells you a lot about the meaning. So for example, if let's make a deal occurs in an email between you and the business partner, that means you're on your way to making a profit, right? If let's make a deal occurs on a billboard advertising a local casino, it means you're on your way to taking a loss. (laughs) So context is everything. The type of genre is everything. Genre shapes our expectations on how to approach a a particular text. And believe it or not, um, this is actually a a super important issue when it comes to inerrancy and when it comes to um, the total verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture um, because faulty interpretations very often arise from the idea that genre doesn't matter. That therefore I can make anything mean what I want. In the 1978, uh, the first version of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that was released in the 1980s, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics was also released. 25 articles affirming the highest principles of proper biblical interpretation and four of the articles of the 25 refer to literary form, to genre, as, as key and essential to proper interpretation. That you cannot make a narrative like a poem, you cannot make a poem like an epistle, and so forth. And so let's just walk through some of these, uh, the, the major genres. The law. I think this is the one that, that scares Christians the most. Um, and in fact, some even, uh, some even would uh, uh, put this down as, well, we don't need the law. And they mix up the fact that we're not under the law of Moses with the fact that Scripture is inspired from Genesis to Revelation and we need the law because it is part of Scripture. So we don't want to do that. You have Exodus 20 through 40. You have the entire book of Leviticus. You have portions of Numbers. You have most of Deuteronomy. Um, And I'm just going to throw in a little uh, wrench in the works here also. In the New Testament, we are under the law of Christ. Um, And so... Does the New Testament have the literary genre of law? No, not technically. You have epistles. But does it function as law? Very often it does. Because the the Bible says we're under the law of Christ. Then you have the narrative. These are the, the narratives are the stories in the Bible for the purpose of conveying a specific message. For example, the difference between Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles, there, there are differences, and yet they overlap. Second Samuel includes selected material from David's life that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the message in Second Samuel is that sin results in devastating disappointment and terrible consequences. First and Second Chronicles omit a lot of David's sin. They include extensive treatment as David uh, for David as king, the priests, and the temple. And the message of First and Second Chronicles is different. That when the group of Jews returning from captivity under Zerubbabel at the very beginning of the uh, the end of the exile in 538 BC, and then Ezra in 458 BC, the people were downcast. They had no temple. They had no king. First and Second Chronicles was written to encourage the remnant that a Davidic king was coming back, and so it didn't serve a purpose to. To highlight all the horrible failures of David. I, I, I believe with all of my heart that David, now perfected, loves all of Scripture. But if you if you asked him which one is his favorite, I'll bet First and Second Chronicles is his favorite because Second Samuel tells all of his failures. So of course that's going to be his favorite. But they but they serve a, a specific purpose. 
One of the misuses of narrative is the moralizing of stories. That is the biggest misuse of the Bible, probably. Um, that's what you'll find in a, in a typical uh, American evangelical worship service where a preacher is going to preach an Old Testament text. He's going to give, what's the lesson we learn? And yes, we learn lessons from every narrative, but it must fit into the story of redemptive history. It must fit into the, into the message, uh, the overall message of the Bible. So, uh, for example, Example, uh, the book of Ruth is not just about how to be a godly woman in difficult circumstances, although you can learn how to be a godly woman in difficult circumstances from the book of Ruth, but the book of Ruth isn't about that. The book of Ruth is about the fact that even in the midst of a time of rebellion where God is having to judge Israel over and over again during the time of the judges, there was a remnant. There were, there were holy men like Boaz, and there were women who were receiving the grace of God like Ruth that God was preserving the remnant. So that's, that fits more into the redemptive uh, story of history, the redemptive history of, of uh, uh, God's plan for the whole of all of the Bible. So the typical narrative pattern kind of goes like this. You have a background and an introduction, and so you look for that. Generally, a narrative will present some sort of problem, some sort of challenge. So if you look for that problem or challenge, that, that helps you understand what the theme of that particular section is. Then you have a, the solution to the problem, and then you have the conclusion. That is very typical. You can look for that in most narratives, in most sections um, that tell a story. There are subtypes of narrative, and you don't have to worry about this. I don't have this in your notes, um, but just kind of for your information... Uh, you have tragedy. You have the story of, of the decline of a person. Uh, Samson, Saul, Solomon. Each one of us has a, each one of them has a lesson for us, and it tells us uh, with Samson, Saul, and Solomon, all three point to the desperate need for a new covenant. That the new covenant is the only way that somebody can be made permanently um, in Christ and and without declining. So in other words, you as a recipient of the new covenant, you will end your life in Christ. You will end your life faithfully because the Holy Spirit has, has decreed that. You have epic in history. Long narrative with a series of events around a person or a group of people. Uh, Israel's wilderness wanderings, that would be considered an epic. In the New Testament, the Acts narrative history around the ministry of first of Peter and then of Paul would be considered an epic history. You have romance. You have a narrative which outlines a romantic relationship between a man and a woman. Song of Solomon comes to mind. Uh, the book of Ruth comes to mind. Very romantic. There, there are many other uh, smaller sections of scripture that include romance as a, as a part of the Bible. You have the heroic narrative. It's built around the life of a hero. Abraham, Gideon, David, uh, Daniel, Paul. And so you know, the the stories that revolve around them and their successes by the power of the Lord, that would be heroic. Then you have uh, satire. Satire, uh, the exposure of human weakness through rebuke. That happens in little subsections of, of narratives. Uh, we could use the book of Jonah as satire also. Uh, yes, it's narrative. Yes, it's prophetic. But it also is satirical because Jonah challenges Israelites, it challenges the Jew to examine their attitudes toward the lost Gentiles. 
because Jonah is the story of God moving away from Israel for a time and, and saving even the terrible Assyrians because he is a God of grace. So there's satire. You have polemic. P-O-L-E-M-I-C. Polemics are, are arguments, refuting the views of others or aggressive attacks against heresy. Uh, El- Elijah's contest with 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. The, the ten plagues against the gods and goddesses of, of Egypt in, in Exodus. Those are polemics. Those are arguments for, uh, for something. Uh, we would also put Genesis chapter 1 in the category of polemic narrative because it, it argues for the existence of one true living God. Not a God of the moon, a God of the sun, God of the stars, but just one true living God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. So that's narrative. Narrative is, in my, uh, in my estimation, it is the most difficult genre to preach because it's the easiest to mess up theologically. It's the easiest to moralize and to simply say, you know, the lesson of David and Goliath is that God will help you slay the Goliaths in your life. Um, so it's the easiest one to mess up. So you want to be really clear about what's the theological purpose of the whole book, what's the theological purpose of this section, and fit it in properly so that you can have a good interpretation. And then there is poetry. Traditionally, there are listed five major books of poetry, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. I, I would include Lamentations also because it is a poem. It's a, it's a very well put together poem. The, the entire book, all five chapters, is one giant structure that, that fits perfectly together. But we also know there's many poems within, merit, within narratives. Uh, Luke chapter 1, the, the Song of Mary is a poem. We have uh, poems all over narratives. And this is, this is a long discussion for another time, but the distinctive feature of biblical poetry in the Bible, particularly Hebrew poetry, is parallelism. And this is, this is a technique used by Jewish writers to help a text interpret itself. So parallelism uh, means basically two lines are presented as complementary. Sometimes three or four, but usually two. And then they're, they're, they're presented in parallel form. And I'm sorry, I used the wrong word. Uh, they're, they can be complementary. That's one type. Complementary, which two lines which are synonymous to each other that mean the same thing. You see this all the time in Proverbs. You also have a contrast where two lines which are opposite to each other in contrast. So in Proverbs all the time you have that to that to that to that, but that to that to that to that, the opposite. And you have progressive parallelism. Two lines which have one meaning with the second line giving more information than the first. And the beauty of this is is that it it relieves you of the responsibility of trying to figure out what one line means. It's a built-in commentary. Um, you, You have one line. If you see the opposite, you see that it means you can go back to the first line and see what it means. You can see a a, uh, a complementary, which helps confirm your interpretation of the first line, and then progressive, which you get more and more information. All three are there. Those are the three major types. There's anywhere between 15 and 25, depending on how you count types of parallelism. But those are the three big ones. Complementary, they're the same. Contrasting, they're totally different. Or sequential or, or progressive, that they, they build on each other. So look for that in poetry. 
because it will help it opens really your your eyes to see what the author is intending which is our whole point right authorial intent is everything uh, i listened to an interview with a uh, <clears throat> with a theologian who was asked a question he said uh, the, the question was can you summarize what it means to study the bible properly and he said easy authorial intent what did the author intend <clears throat> That's what you're looking for. So that helps you with poetry as well. And even the bigger question, why was this topic presented as a poem? Why was, why was Song of Solomon presented as a poem? I think one of the reasons it was presented as a poem is because under the age of about 10 or 12, you can't really understand it. And you become an adult and you read through it and you say, this is good stuff. This is about marriage. A 10-year-old says, this is a lot of chapters about gardens and vines and things like that. And okay, that's great. The poetry uh, hides the truth from those who aren't ready for it and exposes the truth to those who need it. It's, it's genius. Why is uh, the book of Proverbs presented in poetry form? Because you need to contemplate it. You, you can take one line. Better to eat a dish of vegetables in a house of peace than a fattened ox in a house with strife. Do you see the parallelism? It's contrasting. Better to eat in a house of peace than one in a house of strife. But the poetry makes you chew on it. No pun intended. It makes you think about it. It makes you um, delight in it and helps you remember it, doesn't it? So poetry is a, is, is a beautiful uh, genre of the study. Now we have a lot of overlap with wisdom literature. The wisdom literature includes poetry. And, and depending on who you ask, there are a lot of different lists of what the wisdom literature is. Traditionally, it's Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature. Uh, I, I would include the book of James. Uh, the book of James is the New Testament's Proverbs. It is wisdom literature right up front because it doesn't start off with a, with a lot of theology. It starts off immediately with consider it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's, that's proverbial wisdom. Uh, I would include Song of Solomon as wisdom literature. Some don't, but Song of Solomon definitely has a story. The story is choose monogamous marital love in faithfulness to God's law. And that's, that's the, the lesson of Song of Solomon. Then you have the Gospels. The Gospels stand alone as a literary type, as historical narratives which include doctrine. They are, they are unique. There, there are no other Gospels. There's four of them. They're more than just a story. You draw doctrinal conclusions from the Gospels because in the Gospels uh, are also contained the direct teaching of Jesus Christ. So you, they present the God-man, Jesus. To pre, they, they bring the lost to a decision. They bring the saved to a greater intimate knowledge of their Savior. And the Gospels are are brilliantly conceived. They cover every possible individual. And we've talked about this before. But... Um, the Gospel of Matthew, for example, is written to the Jew. The Gospel of Luke is written to the Gentile. The Gospel of Mark is written to the Gentile. The Gospel of John is written to the Jew. The Gospel of Matthew is written essentially to the church, to the saved. The Gospel of Luke is written to the saved. The Gospels of Mark and John are written to the unsaved to bring them to faith in Christ. So what does that do? You have unsaved Jews, unsaved Gentiles, saved Jews, and saved Gentiles. 
being spoken to. That's the that's just the, uh, just scratching the surface of the genius of the Gospels. But you don't compare them to anything else. The Gospels are their own genre. They 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 stand alone. And then you have the epistles. This is where the the letters. This is maybe in a lot of ways where we're most comfortable because you have Romans through Jude, and this is uh, just where we're told what to do and what to believe, and it's it's very direct. Two basic types of materials in the epistles. You have doctrine and duty. The purpose is to give you direct teaching as opposed to indirect lessons or implied lessons. And so we base our strongest doctrinal epistle or, or doctrinal positions rather on the epistles. Um, they're based first in, on the epistles. That doesn't uh, de- devalue the value of, uh, for example, doctrinal implications in other genres. But you don't form a doctrine solely from poetry. You don't form a doctrine solely from wisdom literature and certainly not solely from narrative. You, you form it from epistles and other genres confirm what you've learned from the epistles. And we have to be really clear about that. Uh, the greatest doctrinal errors in history generally ignore the epistles or they don't consider how they fit in with the rest of the Bible. You have prophecy, one of my favorites. It includes predictions of the future and that's part of prophecy. It includes admonitions of how to live in light of the prophecy. That's a, that's a major part of prophecy, that because this is what's going to happen, here's how you ought to live now. And so that happens both in Old Testament and New Testament prophetic literature. Now we've said before that Revelation is its own category of prophetic apocalyptic. That it's just kind of one big giant uh, uh, glorious collection of prophecy that also deals with cataclysmic events on a global scale. There are other parts of the Old Testament that deal with those cataclysmic events, but not an entire book um, that does that. So it's its own category. And there's one more note about prophecy. The great thing about Bible prophecy is that um, much of prophecy in the Bible is not yet fulfilled. But so much of it is that it leaves no doubt whatsoever that God is able to fulfill anything. That he, and so, wouldn't it be terrible if we just had a book, all of prophecies that are yet to come? You have no basis to believe that they will occur. And yet, the Bible is so filled with prophecies where early in Scripture you can see uh, a specific prediction, and then later in Scripture you see that it comes to pass. And so that is very helpful to us. Of course, the, the biggest example of prophecy that we see coming to pass are the 350 or so uh, predictions of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament fulfilled many of them uh, in his first coming. And so, uh, and we've talked about the odds of that happening and so forth, but that's the biggest one. That's a huge, huge confirmation factor for us for the veracity of Scripture. So right about now, you might be saying, why are we doing this today? I wanted to learn something. Why does genre matter? Well, first of all, it helps you understand the answer to the question, what's the overall thrust of the book? Um, book of Psalms, poetry, songs meant to be set to music. What if the book of Psalms were reduced to, here's the theological lesson of Psalm 1. Next, here's the theological lesson of Psalm 2. That would have a totally different purpose, wouldn't it? The purpose of the book of Psalms is to connect, listen carefully, to connect truth and worship together. That they go together. 
So that, that helps us. The genre matters. It also helps us to not take verses out of context. If the Bible were just a, a giant list of truths, now this is true, this is true, or, or assertions rather, this is true, this is true, we don't have any way to compare it. But when you see a truth... For example, in Romans 9 through 11, an epistle, statements that God will restore Israel. Okay, why, why should I believe that? Because in narrative literature, uh, going all the way back to Genesis 49, for example, Jacob prophesies that his son Judah will bring forth from his family a king who will reign forever. You have all through the minor prophets, all through Isaiah, all through Jeremiah, this uh, promise that Israel will be restored. And so you don't take things out of context. The reason people mess up Romans 9 through 11 is because they don't consider the Old Testament. And they, they say, well, Israel is the church. Not when you get beat over the head with the entire Old Testament. You cannot come to that conclusion. So genre helps you uh, not take verses out of context. And then genre helps you get into the mind of the author. Why did the author choose to use poetry? Why did he choose to use an acrostic in poetry where he uses the Hebrew alphabet? Why did he choose to use um, narrative to tell this story? There's, there's always a reason for it. And so as you're, um, as you're thinking about these things, then it helps you understand the author had a reason for this genre. And you can, you can read about that and, and ask questions of your commentaries and so forth. All right, I want to talk about something called structural analysis. And I know this is what it will tend to do to you. You thought literary genre was was dry. This is like the Sahara Desert uh, on steroids. Structural analysis. Before we move on, before you think that is something that's boring, it is one of the most important Bible study tools you will ever use. Because God is a God of order and there is not a single word in the Bible that wasn't placed exactly into a structure. There's nothing random about the Bible. Nothing whatsoever. I've said this before. I've read parts of the Koran just to see what the enemy's doing. And first of all, they steal 75% of it is just Old Testament. But there's no flow. There's no story. There's no no, uh, sequence to it. There's no structure. It's just crazy random. Why? Because men put it together. But the Bible is put together by God. So structural analysis has to do with how a book or a specific section or a a single passage is structured. And what this does is it helps us understand the the mind of the author, the intent of the text. And it's it's a terrific teaching tool. Now you have to look for it. I'm going to give you, here's one example. The book of Revelation, and we've talked about this structure before, what you have seen in Revelation 1, what is now Revelation 2 and 3, and what will take place, Revelation 4 through 22. That is, that is huge. That is hugely important. That structure tells us what the thrust of the book is. How much of the book is spent on what will take place, uh, all the way from chapter 4 on? Everything except for three chapters. Um, who disappears beginning in chapter 4 and is never mentioned again. The church. You're, you're well taught. That's wonderful. <laughs> Thus, what does that tell us about the rapture? You know, what? What does that have to do? The structure of the book of Revelation tells us that the rapture must occur before the great tribulation because the book of Revelation is not about the church. The church is taken away so that God can deal with Israel. 
That's the structure tells you that. So that alone is is helpful. Uh, let me give you some sample structural patterns and and you don't have to worry about learning or memorizing this. I just want you to understand that there is structure in whatever passage you choose to study and and look for it and try to analyze it and and you can get help with it but it's it's more fun to try to analyze it yourself first and then move on. Uh, there are parallel patterns. We've already mentioned this. This is primarily in poetry. You have the and there's a lot of different names for this. The ring or the sandwich pattern. I like the sandwich pattern. The, the sandwich pattern basically says that this, there's central material that has parallel material that seems unrelated before and after it. And, you, and so it seems like the middle part is unrelated. But the middle part helps you interpret the two outsides, the A's on the chart there, and the two A's help you interpret the seemingly unrelated middle section. Let me give you a couple of examples. Genesis 37. Joseph is sold into slavery. That's the first A right there. The second A, two chapters later, Genesis 39, it resumes the story of Joseph. Joseph being sold into slavery. What happens in the middle? Something weird Judah's sin with Tamar. Why are those two together? What's the point? You have a huge contrast between Joseph's purity and Judah's sin. And you also have Judah, a man who, if you read the story in Genesis 38, he is supposed to be the one from whom Messiah will come, and he doesn't care enough to continue having children to even worry about it. And yet, you have Joseph, who's in Egypt, preparing for the people of Israel to come there and to become a nation and to grow and the redemptive plan of God will happen as God brings Israel to the promised land and down the road a Messiah is born. So you have that, that sandwich pattern and it helps you see the contrast and it makes you dig into the story. Why is this seemingly unrelated stuff here? The Gospel of Mark is famous for these sandwich portions which help us interpret the entire text. And I'll give you my favorite uh, example. Mark chapter 8, 22 through 26, Jesus heals a timid blind man in stages. Do you remember that? What do you see? I, and he said he had kind of fuzzy sight. And so Jesus continued on. This was not Jesus saying, oh, well, I should have put more mud on him or I should have worked harder. Or I should have zapped him or said more magic words or whatever. No, there's a reason for it. And so, especially since that's the only time he healed in stages, the second A, right there, you have the instant healing of a blind man who's very bold in his faith, who, who leaps up to go to Jesus. Matthew 8, the blind man is timid, has to be brought. He doesn't even speak. Matthew 10, uh, the man cries out to the son of David and he, he boldly leaps toward Jesus to be saved. What happens in the middle that's seemingly unrelated? From Mark 8.27 to 10.45, Jesus foretells his death and his resurrection three times. And every time he does that, the disciples show evidence that they don't get it. But they show progress. So, progress from the man who was timid and had little faith in Christ to the man who was not timid and had full faith in Christ and believed with all of his heart that Jesus was going to heal him. And in between, you have the progress of the disciples who were slow to believe. 
So those ring or sandwich patterns are important. Now, you can find them if you're looking for them. Don't look too, too hard. It needs to be obvious. Um, the Bible is not a group of sandwiches. So, um, but they are there. And uh, look for this, particularly when a, a text seems to be just parachuted out of nowhere. You know, what, what's the point of this text? Why, why is this here? Then you have the, uh, the chiasm pattern or inversion pattern. This is named after the Greek letter key, which looks like an X uh, to, to us. Um, you can have either odd or even numbered elements. And I've done an example here of a even and odd. You have A and then B. Sometimes there's a C, the middle section, B1 and A1. Um, this is extremely frequent in scripture there are entire books of the bible that are one giant chiastic structure the book of Ruth is one giant chiastic structure the book of Lamentations is the book of Song of Solomon one giant chiastic structure now here's, here's an important distinction generally speaking when there is an odd number and this one is odd A, B, and a C then B1 and A1 um Generally speaking, what comes in the middle is the most important part. That's what it's telling you, that this is the the climactic portion. In English literature, where does the climactic portion come? It comes at the end, right? In in this particular structure, it tells you to look to the middle. And here's here's what's mind-boggling. B and B1 have similar themes. A and A1 have similar themes. And you'll begin to see this. This is an incredible teaching tool. Um, public speakers have been doing this for thousands of years, by the way, because when you're talking to people who don't own pencils because nobody invented them yet, who don't have paper, and you're trying to say something memorable to them, um, a chiastic structure has been uh, a tremendous memory tool, and it is the way our brain works. Our brain works to return at the end to what we started with. Uh, I'll give you an example that's really mundane. Those great communicators of truth, stand-up comedians, the best ones use chiastic structures in their shows because they, 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 they call it a callback. A callback is they told a joke near the beginning, they developed that joke, told a lot about it, then they do a whole bunch of other material and right back at the end they do a callback. And you know how you can tell that people's brains are work that, work that way, wired that way? Because everybody goes nuts with excitement. They clap, they laugh their heads off because the, the, the speaker went back and referenced something that's already in your brain and was fresh. That's the way our brains are built. And the Bible is saturated with chiastic structures. So when it's odd, odd numbers, generally the middle is the most important part. Um, This is debated, but I have seen this to be true uh, many times. When it's even, the middle is important. That would be B and B1. But at that point, you focus more on what's on the outside, the A's. That that's the the key. Um, it's It's an incredible teaching tool. Give you an example. Matthew 7, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The A is do not give dogs what is holy. B, do not throw your pearls before pigs. B, 1, lest they trample them underfoot because you're still talking about the pigs. And A, 1, and turn to attack you. Pigs don't attack. Dogs do. 
uh, at least in 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 uh, Palestine, pigs weren't necessarily attack pigs. So they had. So he, this is a this is a chiastic structure right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is filled with them. They're filled with them. Um, I would say that the Beatitudes of Jesus in a very simple form may be a chiastic structure because he starts with blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning I don't matter, I am of no account. And he ends the Beatitudes with blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. You must be poor in spirit to be able to be persecuted. And so uh, all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses that. Let me show you a larger portion here. This is the, the flood narrative. A, God's covenant with Noah. All the way down to A1, God's covenant with Noah. B, Noah brought clean animals to the ark. B1, down near the bottom, uh, Noah's new diet. Meat is allowed. One of the reasons he brought animals. The C, Noah brought unclean animals. C1, Noah sacrificed animals. D, Noah entered the ark. D, 1, Noah exited the ark. E, the flood arose. E, 1, the flood receded. F, right in the middle, the flood crested, the ark rested, and God remembered Noah. So what's the point of the flood? God remembered Noah in grace. It's right there. The entire book of Ruth, one giant chiastic pattern. All of Song of Solomon. Then you have the acrostic pattern. And fortunately, uh, you have uh, our English Bibles generally tell you when this is happening that each verse or section begins with the next letter of the alphabet. Some of the more famous ones uh, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, the excellent wife. Uh, Psalm 119, 22, eight verse sections meant to help you re- remember them if you're a Hebrew child going through these. Uh, Lamentations 2 and 4 have 22 verse acrostic patterns. Chapter 3 has a 66 verse acrostic pattern, three verses on each letter. Um, Psalm 37 is an acrostic. It's, it's about the, the fact that we live in a day where we are in pain and we look for the Lord's vindication, but the king will return. That's an acrostic pattern as well. So the point of an acrostic pattern, you're, you're not going to memorize it. You're not going to say, well, I don't know Hebrew, so that doesn't make any difference to me. The point of an acrostic pattern is that the author meant you to, to commit this to memory. So can you commit... Uh, Psalm 22 or Psalm 119 to memory. If you dig out the theme of every one of the eight verse sections, you could technically commit it to memory that the theme of section one is this, theme of section two is this, and so forth. So it tells you the author meant you to dig into this and to and to remember it. The Proverbs 31 uh, acrostic. Not to blow your mind here, but the Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, is not only an acrostic, it's also a chiastic pattern. And what you find in the middle is verse 23, that the man is blessed at the gates because of his faithful wife. He's blessed in public that people say, wow, what a great wife you have. That that a wife creates blessing for her husband. That's the middle. So sometimes they will overlap, um, and that's just an added bonus. So, what do you do with all this? Look for any structural pattern in your text, or if it's part of a larger structural pattern. 
um, that, that can be helpful with one distinctive message. This takes practice. So for your assignment, what you're doing for your text, just, just play around with it. Just make some notes and, and don't die on that hill because you might not get it right, but it's fun to play around with. Um, we said this when we preached through Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is a triple-layered chiastic pattern. There is one large chiastic pattern with seven parts to it. Each of those seven parts is a chiastic pattern, and every one of those has a chiastic pattern within it. No human being could come up with that. Um, and and it's, it's mind-blowing. And it's meant to, to draw you um, to the, the center of the text. The center of the whole book is the love of the man for the woman. That's the, that's the whole text. Now, you might be saying, I will never do this. I have no idea how to do this. So get introductions to, your, to Bible books. In your study Bibles, and, and there's no reason to only have one study Bible. They're not that expensive. Get two or three. Um, or if you have a commentary on a book that you're studying, very often the best commentaries will have an exegetical outline. It's just a, a dry as dust, boring, here's what happens first, here's what happens next. And good ones will be three and four layers deep. And so that will help you see, hey, these themes are the same, and sometimes they will even point out the patterns there for you, and that, that's helpful to you. So, you're still awake. This is good. Now, this is where it gets more fun. This should not put you to sleep. Figures of speech. Figures of speech. To, to put it simply, why does God work? Why, why does he use word pictures? I'm of the opinion that, and I can't prove this, but I think I can make a good case for it. I'm of the opinion that the, the number one reason God uses figures of speech is because it's easy to identify themes throughout Scripture. That this picture is here, and it's here, and it's here, and it's here. You have the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. You have a prediction that Messiah will be will be placed upon a tree. You have him on a cross, which is called the tree. And so you have these pictures that, that sort of sew the themes of, of Scripture together. And this, is, this happens all the time. For example, uh, well, just a definition here. A figure of speech is a word or a sentence used in different way from its original or most basic meaning. We use figures of speech all the time. It's raining cats and dogs, right? We don't use that much in Bakersfield except recently. But what's that mean? It means it's raining really hard. It doesn't mean there's actual dogs and cats um, falling. Which, just side note here, those who uh, are not a fan of dispensational theology, they say that our literal hermeneutic is, is uh, ridiculous. They would they would say that we really think that when the, when uh, we say it's raining cats and dogs that we really think dogs and cats are falling out of the sky. A literal interpretation of scripture does not mean you don't consider symbols and figures. But there are there are many many different types of figures of speech. Probably about twenty five. That's a, a very specialized topic. Um, but the, you know, the Bible's use of figurative language never diminishes the literal nature of Scripture. And here's what I mean. Everything that is figurative represents something that is literal and something that you can discern, something that's real. It's not just a symbolic, it's not just a symbol for no reason. Jesus is the Lamb of God. I saw a children's Bible once. 
that we did not buy for our children because in Revelation when he's called the Lamb of God they had a picture of a lamb on a cross like no he's the Lamb of God figurative language means a literal sacrifice so why does the Bible use figurative language I've already given you my opinion on on a major reason but it adds color vividness and gives immediate meaning there is not any person in this room who can figure out what the Lord is my rock means. And you can even take it a step further. It doesn't say the Lord is my pebble. The Lord is my grain of sand. The Lord is my rock. Big thing that won't move. Everybody gets that. It gets your attention. Paul says in Philippians 3.2, watch out for the dogs. Whoa. So what do you really think of false teachers, Paul? They're dogs. They're rejected. It makes abstract or difficult ideas more concrete. The hand of the Lord was upon me. Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 33. In Ezra and Nehemiah, the hand, the good hand of God. That's easier to understand than the Lord superintended my spirit at that moment to totally guide me into a vision of the future. Ezekiel said the hand of the Lord was upon me. We get that. We get it immediately. It also helps us remember Matthew twenty three twenty seven. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are like whitewashed tombs. You, you could fill in the picture there. So that's like going to a, a tomb and painting it to make it look good. And what does he say on the inside are just bones. And that helps us immediately understand that the basic problem of the Pharisees was that they looked good on the outside, they were dead on the inside. And he said it in one phrase. You're like whitewashed tombs. It captures a big idea easily. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Or we're in LSB now. Yahweh is my shepherd. Big, big picture. And, by the way, remember I said that that pictures help us sew the themes of the Bible together? What's one of the ways that we know that Psalm 23 is speaking of King Jesus, the shepherd? What he emphasizes over and over again, I am the good shepherd. Uh, the Bible says he is the great shepherd. He presents himself uh, as a shepherd. He, he uh, is said to have compassion for the people because they're like sheep without a what? A shepherd. And so that ties in that picture, just sews it together for us. It also encourages reflection and thinking about God's word. Psalm 1-3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Oh, that's worth, that's worth thinking about. That's worth chewing on. How am I like a tree? How, what are my roots going down to? What fruit am I bearing? Are, are the leaves of my life dry and wilted? Um, tremendous picture. So those are just a few reasons the Bible uses figurative language. I'll tell you the number one reason. This is how God chose to communicate to us. And so we respect that and we we work with it. Uh, I think one of the things I love about figures of speech is it makes the Bible accessible to children. makes the Bible understandable. It it is an eternal book with eternal truths that can't be fathomed in all of eternity. And yet a child, when you say, the Lord is my rock, yeah, they might have trouble with concrete versus abstract, but they get where the rock is. They know where the rock is. And all it takes is one adult to say, um, the Lord is like a big rock you hide behind when there's a storm. And they get that. Makes the Bible accessible. So how do you identify a figure of speech? How do you know? 
Well, we're going to go through a few rules here. In fact, we'll, we'll stop with this and then pick it up again next time, but we'll just start here. How do you identify a figure of speech? You always take passages literally unless there's a good reason for not doing so. That's the number one rule. It always must be literal. You don't get to just say, well, this is figurative because you don't like the theological implications of it being literal. You, you don't get to do that. For example, all the numbers in the book of Revelation, 1,000 years, 144,000 sealed Jews, 1,260 days, three and a half days. There is nothing in the text to tell you to take that figuratively. Those are real numbers. Take the passage figuratively when it tells you to do that. That's pretty easy. Almost any dream or vision will include some, if not all, figurative language. Uh, Joseph's dreams with the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. The, the, uh, the person who accuses us of being overly literal would say, well, you must believe that actual sun, moon, and stars will bow down to Joseph someday. That's ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind believes that. A figure of speech tells you something. What, what does that tell you? The sun, the moon, the stars, the, the father, the mother, the brothers of Joseph bowing down to him. These are great, great people. These are important people, and yet they bow down to Joseph. You have the prophetic visions of Daniel 7 through 12. With, you have statues and you have lions and bears. You have things that are clearly uh, figurative. So take the passage figuratively when it tells you to do that. Especially when it, when, and here's another one, take the passage figuratively if it's a simile. That uh, something is like something else. You are like whitewashed tombs. Jesus isn't saying you are whitewashed tombs. You're like whitewashed tombs. It's clearly figurative. Like or as. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's a, that's a figure of speech that we are to be like the deer that, that is thirsty and finds the stream and just drinks and drinks. You take the passage figuratively if a literal interpretation is contrary to the context or the, the purpose of the passage. For example, uh, Revelation 5, 1 and 2, or 1 through 5, speaks of the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Do we take that literally? Is the, is the context a beast wandering around the throne room of God? No. The context is Jesus Christ, who is also called the lion in Genesis 49. Be aware that figurative language is a, is a major technique in prophecy and poetry. Don't be surprised to find it there. It's, it's there. It's everywhere. So you just, you just deal with it as you go. Take a passage figuratively. If the literal sense involves impossibility or absurdity. I think that's obvious. The Lord told Jeremiah that he was making them into a fortified city, an iron pillar with bronze walls. Does that mean the Lord said, well, stand still because I'm turning you into a city and hope you can breathe because I'm going to be covering you in bronze? Clearly not. Isaiah 55, 12, my favorite example. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Does that mean in the millennial kingdom when Christ returns, you're going to walk in the forest and they're all, yay! You know, no. What it means is that the book of Romans that says that that creation groans for the redemption of mankind so that creation can be released. The trees of the field, creation is going to uh, symbolically rejoice that sin has been relieved from the world. Take a passage figuratively if the literal would involve immorality. Jesus spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. 
in John 6, 53-58, which is incidentally the passage that Catholics use to, to believe in transubstantiation, that, the, that the, the bread and the wine actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. That's, that's ridiculous. Cannibalism is not permitted. So that's ridiculous. It would be immoral. And then if a figurative statement is followed by a literal explanation, that's pretty clear, the figurative sense is confirmed. Paul spoke of those who fall asleep in 1 Thessalonians 4. There's an entire belief system called soul sleep based on these passages that when you die, you become unconscious, as it were, until the end of time. Well, what does Paul say right after that? Those who had died. I don't want to say duh to people who are searching the word, but um, so if, it, if, if the literal explanation confirms the figurative, then that's obvious. Uh, the sword of the Spirit, <clears throat> which is what? The Word of God. It's explained right away. It's a great figure of speech. So I'm going to stop right there, and then next time we'll finish that up. We'll probably review that, do how to interpret figures of speech, and then we're going to look at a larger issue called typology, and that, that'll be helpful because that's a big deal in all of the passages that you are studying. So let's pray and, and be thankful to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for giving us a, a book that is complex and glorious and endless in its depth of riches. And in this very short time, Lord, we've just scratched the surface of what it means to really take your word seriously. Thank you for the structures. Thank you for the different types of literature you've given us, Lord, that thrill our hearts with the poetry and stimulate our minds with the epistles and everything in between. I pray, Lord, for every person here that as they read their own Bibles, they be aware of these things and that it would enhance their knowledge of God through the word. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.